This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest in a business or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know if they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast that it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can give you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, new coverage, and also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To get in front of the line and join Ferret's exclusive early beta where you can be part of the first thousand that have an early look and help influence the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. This episode is also presented by Gorgeous, the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores, and can turn your customer support into a private center. We're going to hear from Alex from Princess Polly to learn more. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. Our demographic is Gen Z, and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are, and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Stay tuned after the episode where I chat with Rowan from the Gorgeous team, where he shares three tips to help manage your customer support center during the holidays. Link in show notes to sign up for Gorgeous and to get two months free. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Claire Diaz-Ortiz, who's a venture capitalist and author of nine books, including Twitter for Good and Design Your Day. She was also one of the early employees at Twitter who has been dubbed the woman who got the Pope on Twitter. And Claire has been named one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company. I loved our conversation. We discussed her early blogging days, the rise of social, how to back more diverse founders, evaluating solo founders, and opportunities in Latin America. Without further ado, here's Claire. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. It's so much fun to be on this. I have so many memories of the early months of the pandemic running in circles in my backyard, listening to back episodes of this podcast. So it's very wild. <laughs> oh, that's so kind. Thanks so much for being a listener. I really do appreciate it. I want to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to technology and how did you end up as an early employee at uh, Twitter? Sure. So, you know, when I look back, I really think that there was sort of a five-year period in my mid-20s that really kind of set 
up my career and my life for everything that it would be. And during these five years, I was randomly traveling around the world and being a quote unquote wandering delinquent, as my father lovingly said. And it had all started because when I was a freshman at Stanford, I saw a paper flyer on a bulletin board for a job that offered you like $30 an hour, work from anywhere. And I think probably everyone else thought it was a scam, but I actually signed up for it. And I ended up keeping that job all throughout Stanford, helped pay for college. And then it funded me to travel around the world and do random stuff for five years. You know, I climbed to the base camp of Mount Everest. I uh, ran marathons in a bunch of countries. I took the Trans-Siberian Railroad from China to Russia, but then I got off early because no one explained to me how much dust would be on that. And I'm the type of person that showers twice a day. So, I mean, I just did all this weird stuff for five years and it all ended with me and my best friend who I had obviously got the same job for living in an orphanage in Kenya and starting a nonprofit organization. And really the way that we had been able to get this nonprofit off the ground aside for from these like stupid but amazing job was we had started a Twitter account. And the Twitter account had happened because the year before we had started a blog. If you were blogging back in 2006, 2007, you were almost certainly blogging on blogger.com. So you had one of those blogs about addresses. And, you know, for folks who know sort of the history of Twitter, Twitter was a two-week side project that kind of got spun out of Blogger. So the Blogger folks had found our blog, had promoted it, and then they were like, hey, why don't you come on board and test Twitter. And so like, if you go way back into the archives, there's like a blog post welcoming us to the platform. So we just got a lot of exposure really on. And eventually that turned into me just sort of seeing how social media in the early days could really be used for social good. I ended up at business school with the aim to grow the nonprofit, but I ended up meeting Biz Stone at business school. And he was like, hey, why don't you come on board to do an internship looking at how Twitter and how social media could be a positive force for good. So, you know, proactively, I did the internship and then I just sort of stayed at Twitter for the next five and a half years doing any of the kind of social good stuff we had going on. Obviously, you've got to remember this was a different time in the social media world. No one questioned that social media could be a tool for good in those days. Things have obviously very much changed. And I have also changed with the times. And then also, you know, doing a lot of growth marketing. So our growth marketing was that then was all really influencer marketing. I had the great, great chance to spend almost a year working with the Vatican to help get the Pope on Twitter. And then I ended up leaving leaving Twitter, I guess almost 10 years ago now, moving back to Argentina, where my husband is from. I had a bunch of kids. I'd, I'd started writing books while I was at Twitter. So I kept writing books about marketing and leadership and mentoring. But then I really missed tech. And so I took this course on angel investing about five years ago, and I just loved it. Um, and so angel investing turned into a job at a fund here in LATAM doing early stage investments. And then what I'm doing right now is I, I left that fund. And right now I'm helping out at one of my portfolio companies, the solo woman founder is on maternity leave. So I'm helping out for two months. And then when she gets back, I'll be joining a, a new fund doing some of the same stuff. So early stage in LATAM in the US. That's amazing. That's amazing. I remember seeing, I think it was your blog post or some press around that, that you joined the company for two months while she's on maternity leave, which is a super, super cool. And just shows when you're an investor, how you can really be helpful to truly helpful to a business. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, it's been a fun, it's been a fun experience. I will say, you know, people are always like, oh, you're stepping in as CEO. And I'm like, I'm absolutely not stepping in as CEO. I'm not at all qualified to do that. I'm like a part-time worker who is trying not to mess things up. So I want to 
be clear, you know, she has an amazing team around her. And I think it was just important for a lot of the kind of perception of her raising around recently to kind of do this. And I think this speaks to some of the stuff we'll talk about later, but you know, there's tons of prejudice against solo women founders in particular. So that was sort of one of my motivations also. We'd love to kind of hear the story. How did you get the Pope to come on Twitter? And maybe what were some of the other like initiatives that that you did during your time to make Twitter this place or hub of using social media for good, which of course was certainly one of the reasons why Twitter was was created. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things we saw really early on was, you know, growth marketing at Twitter was essentially influencer marketing, I think, before we were calling it influencer marketing. So what you would do is you would go into any given area, be it, you know, the country of Venezuela or, you know, the world of sports, and you'd find the most famous person in that world and you would try to get them on for free. We weren't paying them. And, you know, then as soon as they got on and became an active user, all their famous friends and then all their followers would get on and then, you know, the world would would rain dollars, right, for us as a company. So that was really our strategy. And we did that again and again. And so I was working with a lot of philanthropic leaders sort of in the business world. Uh, Warren Buffett was one of them we got on. But but then we started to see that, oh, celebrities actually often have nonprofit causes that they really want to share about and speak about on Twitter. So we started using that as a way to get some sort of mainstream celebs on. And then kind of what I find as the most interesting sort of um, hard left we made during my years there, there were some data scientists doing some research into what was really working on the platform. And they came across a bunch of tweet Bible verses that were really kind of punching above their weight. So get incredible engagement for the number of followers on the accounts. And they thought it was an anomaly, but digging in, it really turned out that, wow, religious tweets are just punching above their weight. So what can we do? Can we proactively think about reaching out to religious leaders as we think about reaching out to actors and actresses or sports stars? And so I got put on that project. The Vatican, it all started with an email from the Vatican, which I love. It's like it all, my life all started with like a paper flyer at Stanford, right? It all started with an email from the Vatican and I guess didn't think it was spammy or something and so then followed up and then we developed this incredible relationship and I, you know, to this day say that, no offense to Twitter, but the Vatican was significantly more innovative in that entire process and fast moving than we as a company at at Twitter were at the time. I mean, I think we had a few thousand employees then and we were sort of growing, going through those growing pains and it was just hard for us to, to move really quickly at times. And I was super impressed with the Vatican communication team and everything they did to create this really big kind of televised launch of, you know, the Pope getting onto Twitter and, and tweeting. So, yeah. I thought it was also quite interesting this insight that you had and, and your team had of uh, that Bible verses were really, were actually very, very popular to share and retweet and what have you. And so that's also really cool how it's almost like finding, like, you know, product market fit or just bringing the Pope onto folks that actually would, of course, be listening to the Pope. That's amazing. And of course, I know you left Twitter, you started Angel Investing. Did you have a particular thesis when you, were, when you started Angel Invest? How did you dip your toes when it came to on the investing side? 
Sure. So I did two things that I would highly recommend that really helped me dip my toes. Uh, the first thing is I took a course. Um, it no longer exists, but it was a course for female funders specifically. It was like a small cohort of us. Um, and then at the end of that course, we did our first investment. This was five or six years ago. And that was great. So first of all, I recommend that. And then the next thing is, I think this was almost the next thing I did, or it was shortly thereafter. Um, I became an LP at a fund called Portfolia. And Portfolia is one of these funds that really encourages um, angel investing. And so you kind of become an LP, but you're also kind of an angel investor. So you get to be involved in the selection of the companies. And it was a huge, huge education. And I'm sure there are a couple others out there like this, but if you can find one of these sort of hybrid angel LP models, it's a great way to start learning and to start gaining confidence, right? Because then at some point, I then became confident enough to, you know, start writing my own small checks into syndicates and then start, you know, directly sourcing my own deals and writing my own checks into deals. But, you know, it's a building process. And I think oftentimes people get scared to angel invest because they have this idea that it means that you have to find the one company where you're going to send your $50,000, right? And I, and I don't think it should be that way. And that's probably one of the big reasons why we don't have more women or underestimated folks who are angel investing today. Those are all really great points. And when you first started writing checks and I guess getting more comfortable um, sourcing and writing your own checks and building out syndicates and what have you, were you focusing region-wise on Latin America and the U.S., or was it kind of across the globe? I would say maybe focused on the U.S., but at the same time, I pulled together a group of friends who were women VCs at large funds, and some of them had their own sort of micro funds, and we started investing together through this little informal group. We called ourselves the Angel Collective, and we were doing deals on all continents, so sort of sharing deals. I think we did deals on four or five continents now or something. So I was doing it everywhere. I became really interested in Latin when I became a VC in LATAM. And, you know, that was a learning experience in and of itself. How did you go about, like, what about the founders really have to be compelling? And because, of course, especially at the early stages, it's so much on the founders since there really isn't a ton of data. What do you look for? I look for a lot. I I have to be really clear. I'm an anthropologist. Um, you know, that's what I went to graduate school in. I, I do have an MBA, but I don't really identify with that much. I feel like I just sort of like... I don't really remember much of my MBA, to be honest. I feel like it was like a lot of cocktail hours. <laughs> but graduate school in anthropology is really who I am. And I think, sometimes I think that kind of the best VCs are people who were either spies or anthropologists, because I think they're just like people who are trying to understand motivations of other people. And I think that that's what being an early stage VC, I should say, I don't know anything about what it means to be a later stage one, is really about. It's really trying to understand someone's motivations, because so much of the time, whatever quote unquote plan they're coming to you with, or even even, you know, strategy or product is going to change so thoroughly, you know, by the time that six months or 12 months or God forbid, 18 months have passed, that it's not super, super relevant. What is really relevant is, is the person, what motivates them, why they're doing this and their sort of connection to this, this thing and this mission, right? So, I mean, I think, you know, all of us can sort of look back and we can say, oh, that's funny that the founder of WeWork initially had a baby clothes company before starting. We work right, but I mean that would be the type of thing where that that didn't make sense, right? Investing in that for most investors would would not be reasonable. And so I'm kind of always looking for someone who has a personal passion for something they are doing, who has also displayed a lot of personal or professional resilience, and I, I want to back that person. 
I've had on investors who say that, oh, in the first five minutes, I can tell so much about a founder and, and really thinking about like as almost like their gut instinct, it seemed like. I mean, if you if it really is in the first five minutes, and I feel like that's probably like you're right related to your gut instinct. How long do you spend time with a founder? What are maybe some of the questions that are really eye-opening in terms of what you're looking for in terms of how they answer to really realize, okay, this is something that I want to partner with and I really believe in their mission and overall, like that they also maybe have like the right incentives. I would say there's two types of things that I invest in or two types of founders I invest in. One is a founder who is building something in in an area that I have a really strong thesis about already. So something I've been already looking for someone in the space of. And then there are those founders where I just meet them and I think, wow, this person has it. From the thesis side, you know, one of my big theses in the last few years, and I've been involved in a number or a few companies in this realm has been all about this concept that, you know, verticalized fintech has really left women behind. So we have, you know, verticalized banks for teens and kids and pet lovers and black people and Asian people and parents. And some of these are now valued in the billions, right? But we really don't have any consumer banks for women. So the first one I saw that I started to get involved with a few years ago helped me to really sort of push that thesis forward. And then I ended up getting involved in two others over the years. Hefa in Mexico was the first check into that. And then Oran in Pakistan. And so, I mean, that's an example of, I have that thesis. And so if you come to me now with some sort of women-focused fintech, I have a strong idea about what I'm looking for, what I think works. And if I think you are a great founder, then you'll fit within that, right? And I'm probably likely to invest. But then there are just sometimes those amazing founders who are in areas I don't really know. I mean, I would say they're not biotech or something that I'm completely unaware about, but, you know, maybe in a new thing that kind of surprised me that I can, you know, get on board with quickly. I'll also say, I think something that I think about a lot. So Elizabeth Yin, I know you've chatted with her at Hustle Fund. She's a good friend. One of the things I just saw her talking about on Twitter the other day was this idea of, you know, how often are you investing in people that you originally said no to? Because, you know, sometimes I, I will invest almost immediately with someone again, if it, if it sort of fits into the right category for me. But there are other times where I say no initially, and then I, you know, take time to kind of think about it and see what I want. And that doesn't mean that I'm less convicted. I mean, so, you know, I mentioned Heffa before, but when Emma first pitched me Heffa, I initially said no. Um, and it wasn't because I didn't think she was awesome. It was in that particular case, it was because I, I didn't fully understand her backstory. You know, she came to me with this fintech for LATAM, and I had known of her as a fintech founder in Africa only a year and a half before, right? And I was like, what's going on? And I didn't understand the backstory. The backstory ended up being that she was a, um, a woman co-founder at a company, and she just really didn't have um, a good equity deal. And so it was, you know, it was time for her to make the decision. Like, I think, I think it's time for me to go out and do my own thing, right? But I mean, there are times that you don't understand really the story behind the story, or you aren't convicted enough in the beginning. And that doesn't take away from how passionate you you might be when you do decide some months later. I mean, I was really thinking of going through my portfolio recently because I feel like it must be, you know, at least 20% of the companies in it are companies I initially said no to in some way. That's really interesting because you don't really hear about that side of venture as much. You hear about, well, when a company does great, you know, all the investors are super excited and then the ones that pass, but you don't hear about the stories of investors that actually ended up investing, but actually passed the first time round through. And I think that's really important too, in that you can actually change your mind, right? You're not, you're not so 
convicted of what you previously thought of the company that you're not open for change. Yeah, there's so one of my great mentors is, you know, Adam Grant and his latest book is Think Again. And that book lately has been really, really convicting me on a few specific things I think about the VC industry. And it's been pushing me to kind of say, hey, you know, where can we rethink something that we have accepted as, you know, the gold standard for 15 to 20 years? And I think that's sort of a good lens to look at a lot of things in life with. And so, you know, founders pitching you shouldn't be any different. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of a conversation I had with uh, Soraya Darabi. Anytime I asked her about like a truism, she's like, I honestly just hate truisms because like there's always exceptions. There's always something that's different. And she says one of the things that that in VC, I think that it's easy to say when you're a VC is like, oh no, this is like the, like the path or this is what needs to happen. When like there's, that's often not the case, right? There's usually not like a one size that fits all or, or a silver billet for everything. Yeah, I mean, and that to me also brings up the whole issue of, you know, I think one of the biggest problems, of course, for VCs when we have we have founders where we have relationships where it doesn't work out is when the founder isn't coachable and how the whole thing with VC and with the startup world is like you have to find that very fine balance between being convicted in your idea but then also being coachable about somebody else's and it's really challenging. Since obviously this is like a long-term partnership which we can't emphasize enough in this show How do you think about that then, since you really don't have a lot of time to meet with founders, what are maybe some signs that a founder actually could be coachable? So I think what I like to see is I'm a kind of intense person and I kind of often (laughs) say that to founders directly. I don't smile a heck of a lot, but it doesn't mean that I hate you. But, you know, sometimes I like to see usually even in a first pitch, there's some area that if the pitch is more or less going well, right, there's usually some really specific area that I really want to dive into, right? So, you know, let's go on a tangent about this. And I often like to see the reactions of the founders to that when I push them on a real tangent. So, you know, let's talk to me more about the CAC. Okay, where are you doing that? Why has it really been that? You know, is that a blended CAC? Is that, you know, and when I go deep in, and I like to see two things in particular. So one thing I like to see people admitting what they don't know. It really pains me when people kind of, make it sound like they know what they're talking about when they obviously don't know what they're talking about. Like, I don't need you to know everything. Just tell me you don't know. And then then the second thing is just when people are not really listening for that feedback. I'm doing the um, Kaufman Fellowship this year, and we just had a session where we were hearing all about how, I guess it's some quote from some mentor um, at Kaufman who talks about how you should always be listening uh, twice as much as you are speaking. And, you know, I think that's something important to look for in founders in a pitch meeting. As you said earlier, you know, there's been a big prejudice against investing in women, especially women who are single founders, have no co-founders. What needs to change in VC to be, because I mean, I know like the numbers are really a staggering and I know have even decreased during COVID in terms of number of women that have been invested. But what needs to change in VC in order to, to be more accepting of, to be honest, like investing in people that just don't look like you? Recently, I reread this book that I love. It's called The One Thing. I love The One Thing. Yeah, by Gary Keller, I think. Yes, yes, Gary Keller. And basically the question in The One Thing is, you know, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing this, everything else will be easier or unnecessary, right? And um, so when it comes to women founders and funders, which is the topic of my next book, I've really been writing on this for about nine months now. And I've been working 
working on, you know, what I hoped would be one of those sort of um, big articles that would make a splash, right? And so I've been working on this article. It's probably been about eight or nine months since I started working on it. It's now like, you know, some ungodly 10,000 words, but but I thought it was like amazing, right? And so I sent it out um, to some folks. I heard a lot of crickets and then I got this great <laughs> point of feedback from one of my favorite writers. And she was like, I don't know anyone who would publish something this long. I was like, okay, sorry. So then I read, I went back and I read the one thing. And I realized, you know, I had basically created this really, really long manifesto of all the things we need to do to fix the funding crisis into women founders. When in reality, there's really only, I think, two things. I, I can't say one. I think two things that really, really matter in terms of trying to change things, right? And so to just give context, basically where we are is that in terms of funding to all women teams or solo women founders, only 2% of venture capital dollars goes towards that group of people. And that number has actually gone down in the last 12 years. So it was actually higher before we started measuring it 12 years ago and before we started doing all these initiatives. We have seen some growth, but the only growth has been in teams where there are women and men. So if there is a man on the co-founding team, we have seen some growth into those teams over the last 12 years, right? And you can make different sort of points about what that might be about, you know, may, it might be where we as funds are willing to, to risk our money and where we are not these days. So in any case, I really think if we are trying to figure out how we finally get more money into the hands of women founders, first we need to understand that this isn't a social mission, this is an economic mission. You know, we now have dozens of data points um, that show that women founders produce more revenue, more profits, exit faster, and at higher valuations. So we know this makes sense from the, you know, from the economic perspective of a VC wants to make money and return it to their LPs. So I think that there are just two things we need to focus on. The one thing which has been, you know, written about before is that we really just need to hire more women investing partners with check writing ability. So those are women partners on the investing side, not on the operating side, who actually have ability to write checks, right? And I think that if you do that at the early stages, it will have the most impact. Um, one of my mentors, Jenny Lefcourt, she's one of the founders of Allraise. She gave a great podcast on the HBR podcast recently talking about how, you know, that seed point is, is really the um, sort of barometer of everything that's going to come later. So if we focus on, you know, getting women to write seed checks, getting women investing partners to write more women seed checks, we'll see more women founders. So that's kind of the one thing. But then the second thing and this is a theory I've been developing. It has not been as proven out, but, but I think it might have some legs, is I think we need to really rethink, so break kind of the box of thinking around this idea that solo founders are not a good idea for investors. And, you know, to kind of give a little context in that, for the most part, the big moment in that narrative came in 2006 when Paul Graham wrote an essay about the launch of Y Combinator that, you know, the number one thing in the essay, the essay was talking about, you know, 18 things that, that founders should be or something. I don't remember the exact title, right? And the number one thing was, you know, a founder needs to have a co-founder because, you know, if they're alone, they couldn't even convince one of their friends, what does that mean? And I really think that that piece of advice may have done more to set back funding 
to women founders or underestimated founders than anything else. And again, I don't have that yet. This is a thesis I'm developing. But we have signs that, you know, the people most prejudiced against when a fund or an accelerator decides not to invest in solo founders, we know that those are the women and the people of color. And then we also have new data showing that solo founders aren't really doing so bad. You know, we used to think it was sort of a thing that didn't work historically. And we don't really see that anymore. One of the reasons I posit, I believe, probably has to do with the fact that tech is different than it was 15 years ago, right? We have the rise of no code, and we also have the incredible rise of the importance of, you know, ethical technology, right? So making sure an incredible engineer has also studied philosophy or understands something about, you know, globalization. So I think what we want in a founder has shifted a bit from the coding bros of the early 2000s. And I don't know, I think it could be really interesting to dig into more on this solo founder thing to see if we open our minds more to that, we would end up getting more women and underrepresented founders. What are maybe a few verticals that you're particularly excited about when it comes to Latin America that we just maybe haven't covered on the show as much since we more focus on the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, so for the most part, I think people in Latin America are sometimes facing different challenges than people in the U.S. are, right? And one of the big examples of that um, would be, you know, the way fintech has just sort of taken over the venture capital industry in LATAM. Um, I think it's around 30 to 40 percent of all deals each year go into fintech companies um, in terms of number of deals, not in terms of number of dollars, because number of dollars would probably be higher than that now because Nubank is, is, you know, I don't know, worth. 25 billion now or something. But, you know, fintech and LATAM is really, really important because so much of the population here remains unbanked or underbanked, right, in a way that is just not the same in the U.S. I mean, I, I live in Argentina. We've lived here for 10 years. Um, our entire economy, for the most part, in a period of extreme inflation right now, is it, cash. Do you know what I mean? Like, I haven't, I haven't personally used an ATM machine in years down here, right? Um, so, there are different ways of doing things in different places. And fintech, I think, will remain really important in LATAM for the foreseeable future. I think what is so exciting to me is, you know, I I come from consumer, so Twitter. Um, so I love kind of verticalized social networks, right? So like I'm advisor at Alpha. Alpha is kind of like a LinkedIn for women. It's a women's professional network. But what I really love about fintech and verticalized fintech is it kind of combines that um, sense of, you know, a verticalized social network with a, a fintech opportunity. And so I think that's probably the immediate next thing we'll see in the next couple of years in LATAM is verticalized fintech opportunities. So, you know, there's a bank called Mozper, which is a bank for teens. Mexico right now, there's another one for Gen Zs that just opened in Brazil. You know, I think we're going to see this now. Um, and I'm really excited about it because what we now know is that as soon as you get founders that start to look a little bit different than the founders of the past, then they start to target different types of markets, right? And then you get kind of diversity in an ecosystem like you never did before. And that's going to be really exciting. 
Yeah, no, thanks so much for explaining to us really about like the verticalization fintech and kind of the ins and outs of what we're, of what you're seeing. I had on Ben Savage, who also spoke about a lot about the, the opportunity in, in LATAM when it comes to, you know, as you said, so many people are, are underbanked and a very, very cash-like system. I also wanted your take too of what are you thinking, uh, since you obviously did come from Twitter and I'm sure social media is very, very important to you, how, how do you think about the future of social. Are we also heading into a more verticalized way in that regard? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, we've hit those sort of billion people networks and now we need to niche down into niche communities. I think what's interesting for me for social, and this is something I, I think of, you know, Katie Stanton was one of my bosses at Twitter. Katie now runs Moxie. It's a great fund. They just announced a big raise. And in the um, announcement of their latest fund, there was a quote in the article about how she and her um, her co-founder, GP, who is also a former Twitter um, engineer, were saying how, you know, they, they're going to need to hire someone Gen Z, right, to help them because, you know, their experience that Twitter is now really outdated, right? And because Katie's kids haven't been very good for her deal flow, I guess, which is a joke, of course, to her kids. I'm sure her kids have excellent deal flow. But, you know, I think I'm really aware of that with a lot of the social companies I talk to. I just, I feel old. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's not my space to play a lot of times. I mean, with something like Alpha, I'm that target audience. I'm a woman in tech. I use women's professional networks. But, you know, we really need sort of the future of social to be built by the future of the people who are going to use it. Um, and so I think a lot of those people are, are Gen Z or younger. Um, some of them are going to be um, seniors. You know, we're looking at interesting stuff with aging tech and that sort of thing. But I think that's probably the most important thing that going to happen in social. It's just different founders are going to finally go after markets that haven't been addressed before because that type of founder didn't exist in the past. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Sure. Um, so, well, I guess I've already mentioned Think Again. I've already mentioned The One Thing. I'll mention another book I read recently that I really loved. Um, Melody Wilding is a coach in New York City, and she wrote a new book called Trust Yourself. And it came out a few months ago, and I'm a complete fan of it. I thought it was amazing. And I think it's really powerful for VCs and for founders. It's speaks to something you were talking about earlier, kind of um, when you were mentioning the gut. You know, sometimes we we have gut feelings that we ignore. You know, at the same time, I, I obviously was also talking about Adam Grant's book, Think Again. So I don't want to always rely only on our gut. But um, I really was impressed by this book and highly recommend it. Um, it's called Trust Yourself. On a personal level, one of my favorite books of all time is this book called I've Dreamed of Africa. It was written by an Italian woman, Kuki Gallman, who moved to Kenya in the 70s and became a wildlife conservationist. And I think it's just sort of one of those stories of fish out of water. And I think I have felt like a fish out of water at many po points in life, living in random places. And I think a lot of the founders I invest in often feel like fishes out of water. And maybe that's what gives them all their resilience. I'm not sure, but uh, those are two good books. I love that. I love that. We'll actually be putting all four of these on the website. This is great. What's the best piece of advice that you've received or maybe something that you find yourself saying over and over again? 
Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to go back, and I already said it, so I'm going to repeat it again, but this is Jeff Harbach at Kaufman. I realized it was he who had said it the other day about listening twice as much as you think, and I'll tell you a little story. I was recently, in Kaufman, you have these, like, small groups, you know, Kaufman's just like a fellowship for VCs, basically, and you're just, like, trying to become better VCs, and so you're in these small group dynamics, and I was sharing about some challenges recently in that group, and uh, Jeff was there to kind of provide support and to show us how to kind of do this because we're just at the beginning of our class of 26 cycle. And afterwards, you know, he gave me some feedback that as I was sharing, basically made it clear that I wasn't hearing anything anyone was saying because at the end, you know, it was sort of like, well, Claire, what takeaways do you have? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) And it was really good feedback. And I mean, in this particular case, you know, he said, I think it's just because you're emotional about this topic, which is totally fair. But it was so interesting to me to hear that. And to just have someone call me out on truly not listening as that's what we're supposed to be doing all day as a VC, right? I would hope that every time I get on the phone with a founder that I'm listening twice as much as I'm talking. My last question for you is what's one piece of advice you have for founders? To be coachable. And I mean, if, you, if you're if you trying to learn how to be coachable, like an easy way to do that would be just to add one interesting business book to your you know, reading pile once a month or once every two months or something like that. I think you can learn immense things from long form writing. Um, you know, I'm a crazy reader. I read all the time. But I think that's an easy way to try to be coachable um, and then try to open your mind in that way. I love that. I think that you're actually the first person that actually had that advice on the show. So very original, Claire. Claire, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. I've had so much fun. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic week. You too. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Claire. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Claire. Now let's hear from Rohan from Gorgeous. Rohan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I would love to learn a bit more about your company, Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Gorgeous is an e-commerce focused help desk. We are an omni-channel solution. We aggregate a bunch of different channels that brands utilize to communicate with their customers. Uh, Things like email, chat, phone, SMS, social media, um, any way really to get in touch with potential customers or customers that are looking to buy from your brand. What we do at Gorgeous is we build in a lot of automation and machine learning into the back end of the product. A lot of times what customers are asking to brands is, where's my order? What's my shipping status? Things that are very common and very repetitive. Uh, And what we do at Gorgeous is we help brands automate certain things so that they don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on those common and repetitive requests, but that they can actually spend a lot of time focusing on things that are much more complex in order to drive revenue uh, out of the CX function. So what we do is we actually integrate with uh, three platforms, Shopify, Magento2, and BigCommerce, And what we can do with those platforms is we can actually bring in variables um, from each of the three, things like order number, name, shipping information, tracking information, things that are easily accessible without ever having to leave the Gorgeous platform. And that makes things so much easier for the agents on the brand side of things to get back in touch with customers and make sure that they're helping them in the most efficient way possible. And I always like to talk about uh, social media as well. We have ad comments from Facebook and Instagram. We have Messenger. And we also have Instagram DMs, which is one of our most widely requested features uh, all across our customer base that we can actually bring into the gorgeous platform and help brands communicate with customers and prospective customers, uh, you know, perhaps before they ever hit their website. And so 
we're very e-commerce focused. We have about 7,000 brands all across the spectrum from early stage east, uh, from early stage e-commerce to much later stage mature companies as well. And we're also very international. That's awesome. So you're able to, with Gorgeous, to uh, brands can consolidate all requests that they get from customers, all the customers' tickets, asking where their orders are in one location. Sounds like it's going to save a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like gone are the days where brands are just using email to communicate with with their customers, right? They're using email, they're using social media, SMS is something that brands are really utilizing, especially over the last year or so. There's so many different ways to get in front of customers. CX is much more of a proactive activity now than it ever has been, as opposed to just purely reactive. And at Gorgeous, we help brands make things more efficient from from an aggregation and automation perspective. So you have over 7,000 customers, which is amazing, 7,000 brands. From your perspective, when does it make sense for a brand to be thinking about partnering with Gorgeous or be using Gorgeous? It's a good question. Really, our baseline set of requirements is that, you know, they sit on Shopify or, or BigCommerce or Magento too. And that with the integrations that we have with those three platforms, that immediately makes any brand that's uh, looking to consolidate tickets uh, qualified customer for us, right? And so we have customers that are doing, you know, say 300 to 350 tickets a month, and maybe they're just using a couple different channels like just email and, and phone, for example. And then we have much more mature brands on the enterprise level that are accepting tens of thousands of tickets uh, and have multiple, multiple agents on the brand side working to get back to customers. And one of the things that we do differently at Gorgeous is we actually don't price based on the number of heads that you have using Gorgeous on the brand side. So we're not going to charge you for each additional user that you have on the platform. We're actually just going to charge based on ticket volume. And, and that's how we determine where on the spectrum you are. And for that reason, it generally, in combination with all the automation we build in, it tends to be very cost effective for brands. And not only are they saving potentially on that side of things, but they're also able to generate sales through the automation and machine learning that we have built in. And it gives a bunch of people access to the platform. So if someone on the engineering team wants to hop in or the CEO wants to hop in, they can do so. And it's not going to cost the brand anymore. That's awesome. That's awesome. As we're approaching the holidays here, what are three tips for managing the customer experience that you have for the brand? Since obviously in retail, the holiday period is the busiest time. Number one um, is personalize all your interactions with customers. The worst thing that you can do as a brand is make your customers feel like they're just a number, not an actual person. And in the event where you're not getting back to customers in a sufficient amount of time, or you're not getting them the right answer, or you're not addressing them by name, it's very likely that a combination of these things, or even one of these things, is going to convince that customer to go to a different brand. I mean, there's so much competition out there nowadays that consumers are willing to pay a couple extra bucks just for that more personal interaction with the brand. And so make sure you're personalizing that interaction with your customers and making them feel like you want to have a relationship with them long term. Number two is automate frequently asked questions. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but one of the most common requests we see, uh, especially in the D2C environment with brands, is, you know, where's my order? What's my shipping? status? When is it going to get here? Questions that you and I have both asked in the past as well. And we're finding that agents are spending way too much time manually responding to these kinds of requests. And it's not allowing them to focus on really getting in front of prospective new customers um, via a number of other different channels. And so what we can do with the integrations is we can bring in the variables like name, order information, tracking information. Um, and we could set rules in the background to automatically respond to customers if they were to 
for example, ask about shipping or, or status of their order. And that's just one example. But there are a number of other ways that, that brands can use automation. The important thing there, obviously, is to not overuse automation. There, There's only so much that you can do with, with that piece of the equation. And if you do overuse it, then that takes away from point number one, which is personalization. And number three, find opportunities to drive revenue through, through customer support. Customer support, as I mentioned earlier, is no longer just a, a reactive piece of the organization. It's much more proactive nowadays. So institute live chat campaigns. Hop on a page in front of a customer, uh, basically inducing them to make a purchase by telling them something that they want to hear or helping them out in, in making a decision in terms of product in your website. Utilize social media. If somebody comes in and comments on one of your ads and says they love this product that you posted, respond to them directly in line from within Gorgeous and provide them with a discount code to induce them to come to your website. Institute SMS campaigns. SMS is, is being widely adopted across the industry now, especially over the last year or so. And if you have a new product launch, announce it via SMS. People are on their phones all the time. And chances are they're at least going to click through that link to get to your website and take a look at what you have to offer, especially if they've been customers of yours in the past. And, and if they haven't, then it's a chance to, to gain new customers. So be proactive, not reactive is point number three. And you know, if you combine those three things, I think you're going to have a successful BFCM. No, I love that. I love that. So in just to recap, number one, personalize all interaction with customers. We, we talk a lot about on the show about the trend of uh, personalizing products. Well, also personalize those interactions with customers as well when they do have maybe uh, some pain points. It goes so far. In your second point, automate frequency or, or have an FAQ sheet um, absolutely makes total sense. And the third point I love, which is turning your customer experience or your customer service center from a cost center into a revenue driver. And I think that is pretty amazing um, idea and also really cool because then you get, then you can also influence a repeat rate. And at the same time, if you don't have a great customer service center, if that's not fully baked out and you maybe aren't personalized with customers, then they might churn and you might lose them to a competitor. So that's awesome, Rohan. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.